greatest mysteries, at least if you're an attorney or a judge, is how juries think. How do they decide who is innocent or guilty? What evidence do they rely on? And should they rely on it? The latter question is particularly tricky. Most of us, for example, trust eyewitnesses who have no obvious reason to lie about what they've seen. And yet mistaken eyewitness identifications contribute to 71% of the more than 360 wrongful convictions that have been overturned by DNA. Welcome to today's episode of The Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, and your host for today's show on how jurors think. Our guest today is Dr. Margaret Bull Covera, a social psychologist who has spent over two decades conducting jury research. Margaret, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in jury research. Well, I got involved when I started in graduate school. I went to the University of Minnesota to study social psychology, and my advisor there was uh, beginning work on a study looking at how jurors responded to child witnesses who, who acted in different ways and whether expert testimony on the typical reactions of victims of sexual abuse responded. And so really looking at the interaction of how that expert testimony might alter the way that they view different types of reactions of child witnesses. We would show videotaped reenactment of a trial to jurors, and we varied what was contained in that trial. We, we varied the way the child witness acted. We varied the way the type of information that was provided by an expert. So different people were seeing different versions of the trial, and then we could look to see whether those variations had an impact on the types of decisions that jurors made. And so what differences did you see? We were looking at whether if the child witness violated people's expectations of how a child who had been sexually abused would act on the stand, did that cause them to discredit the allegations of the child? So if the child was very composed and didn't show a lot of emotion, was that something that caused jurors to be less likely to believe the child and less likely to vote guilty? In contrast, if the child was more emotional and upset when describing what happened, was that a more credible child? And whether expert testimony that talked about the idea that maybe sometimes children might be traumatized and might not actually act out, but might be rather common describing it, especially if they described it a bunch of times before what had happened to them. And what we found was that, in fact, expert testimony could help jurors understand when children might not be reacting the way they thought they should. Have you done any research on change of venue motions or just the, the voir dire itself? I have done research on voir dire. I've, and I've done research in support of change of venue motions. Those are not quite the same things. The types of research I've done looking at jury selection has been looking at whether attorneys come to the jury selection process with preconceptions about jurors and whether those preconceptions color the way they ask questions of those jurors in such a way that it impairs their ability to actually accurately assess what those jurors believe. One of the ideas of jury selection is that attorneys are supposed to uncover biases that the prospective jurors hold with the idea that they will 
eliminate jurors from serving who they think will vote against them at the end of the day when it comes to render a verdict. But we also know that attorneys, like everybody else, come to the process with expectations about other people based on the way they're dressed, based on their race, based on their gender, based on their age, based on their socioeconomic status. And so the idea is, do those expectations get in the way of attorneys uncovering the biases the jurors really do hold? And from our research, it it seems that the answer is yes. How good are attorneys in general, do you think, at uncovering biases or picking out which potential jurors might have them? I think it's a really difficult process the way it's set up. You've got this process that I've been talking about, you know, that attorneys come in with with pre-existing notions that I think interfere with their abilities. And then on the flip side, you have jurors who don't necessarily want to let people know what their biases are for a number of reasons. On one side, jurors do know that they're supposed to be unbiased. And some biases are not particularly desirable to reveal, right? If you are racially biased, it's very hard, you know, when you're asked a question, (laughs) there's not a lot of people who say, stand up and say, yes, I am a bigot. You know, they just let it out there. So it's tough because attorneys are coming in with these expectations that hamper their abilities to detect bias and jurors are not necessarily willing to reveal the biases they have. And on the flip side, some jurors don't want to serve. So they will adopt biases that they don't have in an attempt to get kicked off. So there's a lot of things at play that make the task for attorneys very difficult. I can see that. And so where do social psychologists or experimental psychologists fit in? I mean, can we help with this process? If we can, what can we do? Well, certainly one of the things that we've done as experimental social psychologists on a practical side is I have consulted on change of venue motions where it would seem that the pretrial publicity surrounding a particular case would create bias among the jury pool in a particular jurisdiction. And we can assist with community surveys looking at the level of prejudice in different communities to help the courts understand whether changing the trial to a different location might um, help them seat a jury that is less biased. And, And basically these community surveys are things that social psychologists are uniquely qualified to conduct. So that's one way. I think the other way is just to test interventions, right? test possible solutions to problems that we identify to give courts evidence-based recommendations about how they might improve decision-making. And it sounds like from my reading that your lab is part of the research has been creating certain scenarios like regarding jury selection in order to determine, you know, whether the manner in which that prospective jurors are questioned by an attorney might actually influence the answers. And I'm wondering if you have any specific examples from some of your lab research that relate to this? Well, I'm trying to think from lab lab examples. Can I give you a real life case? Yes. Those are always even better. You're absolutely right. So there's been a lot of information in the news lately as, as we're recording this about racial bias in the criminal justice system. And one of the things we've been trying to look at is racial bias potentially in in jury selection. 
and we're having troubles finding it in the lab actually and i think i figured out why if you look at actual cases in which the supreme court has ruled that racial bias occurred in jury selection you do see instances of attorneys preferentially dismissing black jurors from serving but what you also see is that they ask different questions of black jurors and white jurors so if it's a death penalty case you would see attorneys asking white jurors whether they could find somebody guilty if they knew that the death penalty was an option for a black juror they might go on with a a lengthy description of the brutality that can be involved in an execution and then they ask them whether they support <laughs> the death penalty and the different way of asking the question not surprisingly produces different answers if, if you're the recipient of a description that is of a very brutal execution and then asked if you support it probably doesn't matter whether you're black or white you're going to be less likely to support it after hearing that description but if that description is only given to black jurors they're more likely to get kicked off the jury because they don't support the death penalty and that's a, a real life example of ways in which um, asking different types of questions changes the way jurors respond and alters the jury selection process I can certainly see that. I mean, this really becomes a lot more subtle, it seems like. Some of the biases and some of the questions, so I wanted to dive into that a little bit more later. Speaking of kind of race and diversity, how do you think that the diversity of a jury impacts deliberations? Actually, I have a, a great former graduate student of mine, and she actually did her dissertation on this, looking to see whether the diversity of a jury influence the types of decisions that they made and but the interesting outcome of her work is there was some previous work that had been done showing that when white jurors served on a jury that had a black juror on it then they were more careful about the types of language that they used and they deliberated longer and they provided more different types of arguments and so we're, we're processing the, the, the evidence a little bit more thoroughly. And, and part of what those authors argued is that this effect was because black jurors were there to serve as kind of watchdogs for racism. And what Amanda was interested in is does it matter whether the majority of the minority is an underrepresented group? And so what she did is she actually showed that if you put underrepresented groups at as the majority on the jury that you would get the same effect from introducing a white person onto that jury that whenever you ended up having a diverse jury you had uh higher levels of reasoning on the part of the jury and it didn't matter whether the underrepresented group was in the majority or the minority you got the same effect as long as there was diversity if there was no diversity on the jury you could have a jury of all underrepresented minorities and they did not show diversity in, in uh, decision making so the, really the issue is not the nature of the person on the jury that's making up the diversity it's it's actually the having those different viewpoints represented kind of shifting gears a little bit talking about biases and or potential biases in jurors. 
Are there predictable biases do you think crop up depending upon the kind of case? So for example, in a medical malpractice case, I would think that most people would have a lot of respect for their doctors or their nurses. And I was wondering if that might be something hard to overcome in questioning potential jurors. So on the other hand, for example, like in an employment discrimination case, perhaps a lot of juries might have a bias against believing that a certain adverse employment action was taken because of race or gender or whatever. Do you see those kind of patterns and those challenges? It's a really interesting question, and it's one that people have looked at for a long time, trying to identify those demographic variables that can allow you to predict across, at least in a category of cases, the outcomes. And remarkably, there's really few (laughs) that of those demographic variables that do predict whole categories of cases. I think the exception is primarily gender. And you see that there's clear gender differences in deciding cases of child sexual abuse, rape, sexual harassment, the few cases in which battered women are, uh, kill their husbands. But other than those cases, you really don't see strong demographic effects that are consistent. You know, it's interesting, Margaret. I don't know that I was thinking in terms of demographics because I can certainly see how that would be really difficult to link any specific demographic to a particular case. I was just thinking in terms of just attitudes or beliefs or values. Even broad values tend not to be good predictors. So there's been people who've looked at concepts like the belief in a just world. And that is not something that necessarily predicts the way you think it might. Legal authoritarianism does. It's probably the best attitudinal predictor. So people who are very law and order believe in corporal punishment and, and in the right of authority figures that attitude has some predictive power. It's not great. It's certainly more than other types of attitudes. And what we find, like most social psychologists do, is that the more specific the attitude is to the issues being tried in that case, the more likely it's relevant. But because of that, you have difficulty finding a single predictor that will predict across a variety of cases. I can certainly see. I mean, these are pretty complicated issues. And so I can see how it would be difficult even to find personality traits or like you said, values or attitudes, particularly just one that would predict the way somebody is going to vote behind closed doors in a jury room. What has your research shown in terms of how juries or I guess jurors tend to view expert witnesses? I think it varies on the type of expert witness. It's actually interesting to me that I think some of what we found, and we haven't tested this directly, but I've seen it in in open-ended responses to different types of experts that we've shown, that among psychologists, both jurors and judges and attorneys are much more, find clinical psychologists to be much more reliable than experimental psychologists. They like the fact that they've talked to somebody (laughs) that's involved (laughs) in the case. And they they don't like the experimental psychologists because they haven't, even though that would be bad if they would, because it would probably um, 
reduce their ob objectivity. So it's, it's interesting to me that sometimes when judges and jurors and lay people are judging experts, they do it based on things they would use to judge reliability in their everyday life and not really think about the science of data collection and things like that and end up making decisions that would be opposite from the ones that I would make knowing about the reliability of evidence collection. As an expert witness myself, it really is interesting to look at some of the data and some of the interviews that have occurred after a, a verdict is given in terms of how jurors evaluate specific expert witnesses. And, I, and one particular challenge comes to mind, of course, which is the common assumption that if an expert witness or a psychologist as an expert witness is hired by the defense or by the prosecution, there's this kind of automatic assumption that this person is really, in some respects, a hired gun. They're right. coming in. Of course, they thought this person was seriously mentally ill because they're testifying for the defense. Or, of course, they think this person is completely sane because they're testifying for the prosecution. And it's hard. And I get asked this when I testify because um, the types of cases I do, generally, there aren't a whole lot of prosecutors who are hiring experts on eyewitness identification issues. It happens, but not generally ones. They're not hiring people who do, have done the research like I have done. And so, you know, it's a, very often a question I get from the, the opposing counsel is, well, you've never testified for the prosecution, have you? And luckily, I have once. <laughs> so, but, you know, what I like to point out when I can is that there's a whole bunch of cases that I'm consulted on that I tell the attorneys, I cannot help you here. So it's not as if where I'm testifying are the only cases that I consult on. I, I can look at evidence and say, you know, this identification was pretty good. You don't want me, you know, if you, if you want me to say that, then you can call me, but this is what I'll say. And then, you know, remarkably the defense attorney will not call me in that situation. And so I think these, I, I think trying to educate jurors on how these processes actually play out behind the scenes is important for helping them understand the objectivity of experts. Absolutely. And I do, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some really interesting topics, including what the research says about eyewitness testimony. Please be sure and tune into the Forensic Psychologist every weekday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and 6 p.m. Pacific Time. You can also find us on podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. 
welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. I know there's been a huge push to reform, I think, the way some of these cases evolve in terms of people getting up and testifying about eyewitness testimonies. How important do you think eyewitnesses are from the perspective of a juror? Well, our studies tell us that they carry quite a bit of weight, that it's very powerful to, to hear somebody say, this, this is what happened to me and this is the person who did it. There's not a lot of reason for the victim of a crime to lie about it, right? So you've already moved past the concern that there's deceit or deception or lying on the part of the witness. And I think the general public, although they might understand that memory's not perfect, they don't understand necessarily the types of variables that lead to inaccuracy and witness identifications. And then when you have a case where the only evidence against somebody is an eyewitness identification, um, it becomes critically important what the witness says. How often is that? Do you have any statistics on how often a person is convicted, if not solely but primarily based on eyewitness identification? I don't know that we have any statistics on that in particular. I can just tell you from my personal experience, most of the cases that I'm called on, that's all they have. And I'm sure there's a selection bias there because when they're, all the evidence you have is an eyewitness identification, you're going to call in an eyewitness expert to try and strike it down. But, you know, if you think about it, I, I work in New York City and I do a lot of testifying in the area. Most robberies are single witness identification cases with no corroborating evidence. And so if you just think about the number of robberies that are occurring in New York City or in the nation, that's a fair number of cases in which that's probably all you're going to have. So we've established, not surprisingly, that an eyewitness carries a lot of weight with the jury, which I completely understand because I think most of us, whether it's true or not, think of ourselves as, you know, we see what we see, seeing is believing. And I think we oftentimes give that same credibility or that same assumption to somebody who's standing up on the witness stand and saying, yes, I saw this person and I'm 100% sure that this is the person who did A, B, or C. So how accurate are eyewitnesses in general? It's hard to say you know, how accurate eyewitnesses are because we don't know. Because we don't know when that ID is made who committed the crime. And I can't tell you from my studies because my studies vary a whole bunch of things that would affect that. What I can tell you is that in actual cases, somewhere between 30 and 40%, depending upon the study, of witnesses in real identification procedures pick a filler. So a filler is a member of the lineup who is known to be innocent. It is not the suspect. So we know that for 30 to 40% of the cases, witnesses are making choices that are wrong. Then some percent pick the suspect, but we don't know what percentage of those are accurate or not. So let's we, talk a little bit about how most witnesses initially identify a suspect. So okay. take me through that. So a, a crime has occurred. Police are out there investigating. They're talking to people who may or may not have seen something. 
And so let's say a person says, hey, I saw this person. He's African-American. He's Mexican. He's Caucasian. I think he's about this bit, this tall or whatever. Uh, how then does that move on to some kind of formal identification? And how is that typically done? It varies a whole lot. And in my work, I've seen any number of things. I think that people think it is usually because the police identify a suspect for some reason and an identification procedure is, is conducted at the station. That happens, but I, before we get there, I will say that it also happens in a whole bunch of other ways. Like two weeks later, the witness says, I saw this person walking down the street and I think that's the person who assaulted me. Or, you know, I was talking to a friend about it and they said it sounded like this person that they knew. So we looked him up on Facebook and I saw the picture on Facebook and yeah, I think that's the person who did it. So those are also ways in which identifications occur. There's um, problems with those types of identifications, but that's some ways. And in other ways, the police develop a suspect in any variety of ways. And when that happens, they call the witness and they invite them to the police station to conduct either a photo array or a uh, live lineup. One of the things I read in preparing for this show is the potential problems with this idea of the show up identification. Oh yes. Show ups too. Yes. Yeah. So tell me what a show, tell us what a show up identification is and what are the problems with that potentially? Sure. So basically, if a witness gives a um, description to the police and uh, the police might typically canvas the area, so, so just basically drive around looking to see if anyone matches the description given by the witness. And if so, they can detain that person and bring for a brief period of time, and then they will bring the witness typically to where the suspect is detained to do what's called a show up. The witness shows up, looks at the person being detained and says either this is the person who committed the crime or this is not the person. Now you have to think that when this is happening, the person is typically handcuffed, surrounded by police, maybe in the back of a a police car. So there are things going on in this situation which, you know, prejudice the suspect in some ways. It makes it more likely that they look guilty. You know, if you have to be surrounded by police officers, handcuffed while you're standing on the street, it suggests you're dangerous. And, you know, we do know the accuracy of identifications made from show-ups is less reliable. Would it be fair to say that, in general, your opinion is that you should really never have a show-up identification because of the potential problems there? Yes. In fact, I'm part of a group that recently developed the psychologically based recommendations for identification procedures. And we did recommend uh, that there be no show-ups conducted. Now, there are some situations in which that would be difficult. So for example, if you cannot arrest the suspect on the scene. So if you come up and there's a reason to arrest them, there's absolutely no reason to do a show up because you can take them back to the station and conduct a lineup or a photo array at that time. What we're saying though, is if it's not possible 
to take them but to arrest them and you have to conduct a show up it should only be done in cases in which there's a very short period of time between the commission of the crime and the identification procedure because basically the reason the law allows for a show up is the idea that if time would pass the witness's memory would be worse and so you're actually capitalizing on the short time between the commission of the crime and uh, the identification tests so that the witness's memory should be better. And so that should happen, but also other things that we know are good for witnesses in other contexts. You should give them good instructions, like remind them that this may not be the person who committed the crime. You should eliminate any suggestive cues, so clearly they should not be handcuffed and have guns pointing at them or anything like that. And it should all be video recorded so that, that we have a documentation of what happened during that show up. And the witness's confidence statement should be taken at the time that they make their identification. Okay. So before a person gets to the lineup and, or the show up, and the police officer is just questioning potential witnesses, I'm wondering, are there interviewing strategies that can enhance that witness's description? I don't mean you know, obviously lead it in a certain direction. I'm just wondering, preserving that person's memory or what they just saw as much as possible. Certainly there are techniques like the cognitive interview, which is a process through which the police officer helps the witness, what we call reinstate contacts. So take them back to when the crime was being committed and to kind of place them in that environment mentally and help them think through what happened maybe in uh, reverse order of the way the events unfolded. We find that that might conjure up more details. That tends to work really well for talking about what happened at an event. What we know about witnesses' descriptions of people is they tend to be pretty poor and that they tend to provide just really sketchy detail about a person and oftentimes do not contain enough information um, to be used to identify anybody. It's not like... And that's, that's kind of what I was wondering, Margaret, is, you know, is some of the fuzziness that you see in some witnesses. I'm wondering how much of it, and this is more of a philosophical question, how much of it is the person not being given helpful cues to help them really remember as much as they can, not to make up things, not to lead them in a certain direction, but are there certain things, and you've already talked about potentially going back to the scene of the crime or getting them well, to Just clearly yeah. going back mentally to the scene of the crime. You just don't physically take them back. Right. But you're right. Go, back. Yeah, exactly. Going back. So in other words, you know, if you're, if you're interviewing a witness, and I would imagine that, because I know I've been involved in plenty of cases, especially civil trials, where there was a criminal trial five years ago, now there's a, there's a civil trial. And it's pretty incredible sometimes to read initial witness descriptions or testimony, even in a criminal trial, and then it's five years later and there's a civil trial. And the, quote, memory has changed dramatically, uh, not only in terms of what the witness is now saying, but the level of certainty that they have about what happened is, you know, dramatically increased 
over time. And so yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking, and that can be problematic for people who are on a jury and now listening, and it can certainly be, be problematic for a defendant or a defense attorney in a civil case where somebody may not have been very sure at one point in time. And yet over time, not necessarily for some diabolical reason, like I've got to win the case, but just because they've been interviewed so many times, they've told the same story so many times. We all know that when our memories become solidified or we stick, that it just increases confidence or it tends to increase confidence. So I guess what I'm saying is as we're talking about some of the strategies that police officers can use to avoid leading witnesses, are there strategies they can use at the time that the crime occurs or shortly thereafter that will help preserve some of those memories? And what I'm hearing you say is one thing would be potentially uh, mentally having that person go back to what they witnessed and kind of go through it and maybe even do it in reverse to help that person gather as many details as possible right after the crime occurred. Right. It should be right after the crime and it should be documented. I mean, the problem I often see when I'm reviewing case files is, you know, the initial 911 call gives a description that that is based on, you know, race, general age, and gender. And I might not get more than that. And then the next description I see is after the witness has made an identification. And all of a sudden, these very specific details to the person they identified appear in the description. Like, oh my gosh, they have a tattoo and they have cornrows. The person is balding. You know, this wasn't mentioned before, right? But all of a sudden, this is showing up in the description. And it's something that was specific to the person that they identified. And it was not something that relevant to any of the other people in the uh, procedure. So you really need to document these things right away as soon as possible after the commission of the crime. So you can get the clearest, least tainted information from the witness so that you can compare what happens later on to that initial report. And so how do these eyewitness accounts get tainted? All sorts of things. Sometimes they talk to co-witnesses. So somebody else was there and they start sharing information. Sometimes it's from police officers inadvertently sharing information. Sometimes in terms of how confident they are in their memory, it's enough if once after they make an identification, they're told, good, you identified the suspect. Witnesses who hear that as opposed to nothing are more confident in the accuracy of their identification. The accuracy hasn't changed, but the confidence has, which makes that ability to to use confidence to judge accuracy problematic. Yeah, I was really surprised to learn what a poor relationship, if any, witnesses' level of confidence has or relates to their accuracy. Well, I think that that's what was being said for a long time, and that is certainly what the law is now um, holding in many cases. I think it's more complex than that based on recent research. So it seems to be the case that people who give their confidence statement right after the ID and they're making the ID from a fair lineup with good instructions, an administrator who doesn't know who the suspect is, and then they give their confidence statement, if they're highly confident, they're more likely to be accurate. A couple problems with that though. We know in practice, 
it is rare for these identification procedures to be conducted in that type of pristine fashion that allows for a good relationship between confidence and accuracy. And the yield of highly confident witnesses is very low <laughs> under those circumstances. It makes the police's job hard because if all you're going to take to court are really highly confident witnesses, and if you use all these great procedures to protect the accuracy of the witness, then there's not a whole lot of people who are going to be looking like great witnesses to take to court. We're going to take a quick break. If you have a forensic topic you'd like us to cover, please contact me at drjonijohnston.com. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. What does the research say about, for example, a level of distress that a witness experiences or a victim experiences at the time of the crime and its impact on recollection or memory or the ability to identify somebody down the road? Right. Well, if you take the prosecutors I listen to, they say that stress burns the memory into the witness's brain. That's what I hear a lot, but that's not what happens according to our research. Uh, A review of a lot of studies in this area showed that, in fact, stress decreases witnesses' abilities to accurately identify perpetrators. My favorite study on this is a study by Charles Morgan, at Yale. And he was just ingenious. And he was working with the military and a military training process that basically was training personnel to withstand prisoner of war circumstances. So basically training the the military personnel how to withstand torture, how to withstand barbaric conditions if they were captured. And as a part of this Uh, experience, Morgan was able to go in and study how memory varied under high stress and low stress conditions. What he did is he tested these military personnel's memories for interrogators who conducted high stress interrogations and interrogators who had conducted low stress interrogations. And what he found is that there's a remarkable decrease in the ability to recognize the high stress interrogators. It was a really marked decrease. And what, you know, what's also remarkable about this is some of these interviews went on for 40 minutes <laughs> under these highly stressful conditions, and they still had a very poor ability to recognize their perpetrators. And that's so frustrating because <laughs> It almost feels like somebody who is subjected to some horrible event or some extreme stress is 
less likely to get justice or is less likely to be able to actually identify and help law enforcement find their perpetrator. Yes. And, you know, in those situations, you hope there's other evidence, you know, but one of the most famous cases of this was Jennifer Thompson, who wrote a op-ed piece about how she was raped over a period of time by a man. And she, she said, well, you know, if I survive this, I'm going to memorize every feature of his face. And she eventually picked Ronald Cotton out of a lineup. Problem was he was not the person who raped her and DNA showed that later. So somebody who purposely tried to remember (laughs) was not able to, and, and part of it was probably the stress. Part of it had to do with some of the police procedures that were used, but just because you've uh, witnessed something under a severe level of stress, even for a prolonged period of time, does not mean you'll make an accurate identification. So let's say that you are going into uh, a room full of brand new police recruits, and your job is A, convince them that there needs to be some change potentially in lineup procedures or in how they approach some of these issues. And first of all, how would you convince them? And number two, what would you teach them? Okay. Well, first thing I would try to convince them that I'm on their side on this, that it's important to remember that every time a misidentification is made, there is a perpetrator of a crime that's continuing to roam the streets. And so you've let go the person who actually committed the crime in addition to incarcerating the wrong person. And I'm there to help them understand how memory works and to help them improve their procedures. And so far we have some methods of doing that. And I think the first one we've already touched on already, which was to do that pre-lineup interview right as soon as um, you can after the crime has been committed to document the description. Also document the witnessing conditions. How good of a view did you have? How long of a look did you get at the face? Because we also know that that information changes over time. And usually in a reliable way, people over time start to think they had a better view than they did. And so that's something to be documented right at the beginning and start there. What about this, the issue of social influence hmm. on witnesses? My, my favorite topic. <laughs> For social influence, I think, and that's one of the things that I'm very careful about when I talk to the police, because From my research, I know that if the lineup administrator knows who the suspect is, the witness is more likely to pick that suspect, whether that suspect is guilty or innocent. And it is a very basic process of social influence. I'm not at all claiming that the police who are doing it are know they're doing it, are doing it on purpose. In fact, it's something that people do all the time in all sorts of situations in their life. Police are just being human. And what I would recommend to them is that they conduct what we call a double-blind procedure. That is, the witness should not know who the suspect is, nor should the person conducting the lineup. And so you're saying that most police officers are not out there saying, essentially, it's C, you know, or it's person on the right, or you know, no, no, that was wrong. Try again. (laughs) Or or those kind of overt statements. So how are these subtle social influences given? They're really subtle. And it could be things like a witness says, yeah, you know, it could be 
number two or it could be number five. They, they kind of look like him. And the officer says, tell me about number five. Well, number five is the suspect. And so they've just directed them to the suspect. And I don't think they're doing it intentionally, but they're interested right, in knowing what it is about number five that looks like the person because that's their suspect. But can it even be more subtle than that? You know, it could be number two. And they're like, are you sure? Which is different from, you sure? You know, there's differences in intonation where you're even saying the same thing, but depending upon how it's said, it gives a subtle cue to the witness about whether they should be picking that person or not. And we find that you really just have to tell people who are conducting the lineup, this is who the suspect is. And they actually emit these cues, not everybody, but it happens often enough that you get a reliable increase in the rate of suspect identifications. Now, I was reading a study recently, and it was amazing because this was a complete laboratory experience, and they divided half the subjects into witnesses and half into interrogators. And the interrogators or interviewers were very specifically told that you are not to say anything at all that would even give the slightest hint that the person in one of these photos, number one or number two or whatever, is the actual uh, suspect. And as it turned out, half of the books that were given to the witnesses in the study had the suspect wasn't even in there. Yeah. But the investigators thought that the suspect was in there. Right. And they found an incredible difference, even though they clearly were able to document that the investigators in this lab study were not saying anything to the witnesses. They weren't asking them to take a second look at number five or whatever. They just weren't saying anything. And yet what they found is that um, the witnesses still picked out the suspect more often, or, or at least who the investigators thought was the suspect. And when they went back and looked at the videotapes, they did notice a lot of even nonverbal cues of making eye contact or nodding or smiling. And of course, the investigators were not even aware of this. Yeah we've seen things in our studies like the, that the administrators will, if a witness says it's not number one and the number one's not the suspect, they'll quickly take the picture away. And if they say, yeah, I don't think it's number two either. They'll kind of like linger and they won't, they won't quite take it away. They're not even saying anything. And I've seen some of these behaviors in actual uh, videotapes of lineup procedures. Um, these same, same types of nonverbal behaviors. You mentioned earlier that there have been attorneys who've hired you and you've gone back to them and said, I can testify, but I don't think you're going to like what I have to say. What would be an example of a scenario where you would think, okay, this is a good identification. There's no evidence to think this person does not know exactly who this person is or recognize this person. Oftentimes it's cases where the, where the police did the right thing. Like if I could get, identification that really does use pristine conditions. The fillers don't cause the suspect to stand out. They all match the description. There was reason to put the suspect in the lineup, that the right instructions were given, the administrator was blind to who the suspect was, they got the confidence statement at the right time, you know, and they're saying, yeah, but it's a cross-race identification or something. I'm like, yeah, I could say that, but 
if you've got a smart attorney on the other side, I'm also going to say it was conducted completely properly. I, I prefer cases in which I can point to something procedurally that went wrong. I think that's such an important distinction because I can understand I have many police officer friends and acquaintances who I think would have a gut reaction that was pretty negative initially to talking about the perils of eyewitness identification uh, just because, you know, it's solving crimes is hard enough. And then if you have somebody that you think might be testifying in front of a jury that, hey, eyewitnesses aren't very reliable or whatever, if what I hear you saying is really what I prefer to talk about is procedures that were inaccurate or procedures that were potentially biasing, not so much picking apart this particular person's testimony or their re recollection, although I'm sure there are times when you have to do that, but focusing more on things that really police officers can control. Exactly. And I certainly do talk about what we call estimator variables, which are those things that are not under the police control. But, you know, if there's just one of those things and the entire procedure was pristine, it's kind of hard to argue that I'm going to do much good. You know, I, I always leave it up to the attorney because I'll go in and say, yes, we have this. I mean, I talk about the research. It's the research is what the research is. And I'll talk about the fact that cross-racial identifications tend not to be as accurate as same-race identifications. But I, if, they're, if the prosecutor asked me, was this a fairly composed lineup? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> If they, if they ask me about the instructions, were they appropriate? I'll say yes. And, you know, that's, I, I, and then it's up to the attorneys to do it, you know, to make their decision. It's, it's their case. I'm just there to present the, the research that we have. How much awareness do you think there is now about some of these challenges with eyewitness identification and the need to be more thoughtful about how the procedures for identifying potential suspects need to be revised or changed? I think there's more of an understanding of that. I do think that there's more understanding of some things than others. I, I, I think people understand the need for a properly composed lineup that, so that the fillers are not wildly not matching the description given by the witness or that they, they make the suspect stand out. I think people understand that. And I think some of the other ones make intuitive sense, even though they might not notice if they were missing, even though they recognize that, like, if you ask them, would it be a good thing to warn witnesses that the person may, that committed the crime might not be there? They'd probably say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But I don't know that they would think about it if it was missing. Uh, I know that there's a lot of research, and you may have done some of this, that shows that if people are given a book, for example, of suspects or a lineup of suspects, and they aren't given the information that, hey, the person might not even be in here, there's a lot more likelihood they're going to pick somebody in that group. That's right. That's right. And it interacts with other things as well. So it makes some other biases more likely to show up if you don't give that instruction. Such as so like, like what? It actually makes um, the double blind problem worse. Basically, think about it this way. If you've got somebody who's suggesting to you subtly, non-verbally, that the suspect is the person you should pick, and you've not been given an instruction that, hey, you know, they might not be here, <laughs> that suggestion is more powerful. 
the question I always ask all of my guests is, if somebody's listening to this show, we have a lot of attorneys who watch this show, a lot of law enforcement, a lot of just general business people, what would be the one thing that you would want them to remember the most from our interview? Something that I haven't said yet, which is that I think one of the most important reforms that we can make in terms of improving eyewitness identification is making sure that the police have an evidence-based reason for putting a suspect into the lineup in the first place. Because the biggest thing, the biggest change we can make to reduce the rate of mistaken identifications is to increase the base rate of guilt in, in lineups. That is, the more guilty suspects who are in there, the less likely it is that we will have mistaken identifications. So what do you mean? Some suspects are guilty. Some suspects are the person who's the perpetrator. Sometimes you have suspects who are innocent. They didn't commit the crime. And so what we want uh, police and attorneys to attend to is the ratio of guilty versus innocent suspects that are going into lineups. If you start putting people willy-nilly into lineups who have no connection to the crime, you're going to end up with people making more mistaken identifications. So just because a person was walking down the street and happens to be of a particular race as the perpetrator who committed a crime two hours earlier... It's, that's not a really tight connection unless there's something specific about that person that matches the specific description of the witness. Just being of the same race is not specific enough. So if I am going to show a photo lineup or if I'm going to actually have somebody come down to the station and look at six or eight or however many people standing there and turning left and turning right, and I want to include, I'm including somebody who's been identified as a suspect, maybe by a number of witnesses. Are you saying that I should be very careful in selecting other members of that lineup? No, I'm saying you should be very careful about picking the suspect. Okay. Think about it this way. I'll give you an example from a case. There is a crime that is, the case that I was working on was a 13-year-old boy was held up at gunpoint by a young black man who took his backpack. Weeks later, in a different part, kind of the same neighborhood, another 13-year-old kid was robbed at gunpoint of his backpack by a young black man. The police in that second scenario ran the plates of cars that were in the neighborhood and picked up a young man, young black man. Now, there's probably a lot of young black men in the neighborhood, but this particular one had a juvenile record. And so they put him in a lineup for the crime where they found him in the neighborhood. Again, there's not much of a description there, right? There's, you know, there's not much of a link between that crime and this person, although they were in the same neighborhood, he did have a record. That witness said, no, that's not the person who robbed me. They then show that same person's picture to the robbery weeks before, and he was ID'd for that crime. There's no connection between that suspect and that first crime. He wasn't in the neighborhood. He wasn't identified committing a similar crime. There's no connection. So it sounds like maybe these kind of lineups are identification, whether through pictures or through, you know, in person, sometimes happen prematurely. Exactly. 
Is that accurate? In other words, make sure that you have some evidence to support the person that you're putting in a lineup, not just because like you said, they're in the neighborhood. There has to be some nexus, some connection between the person you're putting in the lineup and that specific crime. I've seen police put suspects into lineups because they basically run the records of people who live in the neighborhood who match the description. And then they put that person in a lineup because they don't have any other leads. Well, there's no connection of that person to that crime. Just because they committed the same crime five years ago (laughs) doesn't mean they're, they're still in the neighborhood, any of those things. And so when you do that, Sometimes you might get good hits. You might get a guilty perpetrator, but I would argue you're more likely to get an innocent person as a suspect. The only study that's looked at this in the field was in the Houston Police Department, and the best estimates out of that study were that only 35% of the suspects in the lineups done there were guilty. That's 65% of the suspects were innocent, according to all the other evidence. That's a pretty powerful statistics and certainly a cautionary tale, I think, in terms right. of- and if, and if you think about it, if you start doing a lot of testing, you're gonna get false positives. It's why we don't conduct mammograms on 20-year-old women. It's why we do not conduct prostate tests on young men, because the incidence of, Breast and and prostate cancer in that age is very low. And if you test for it and find it, it's likely to be a false positive. And it's the same thing here. Well, thanks again. And that really is a cautionary tale. And I think really the bottom line for all this is that justice is never served when an innocent person goes to prison for a crime they didn't commit. Because the person who's truly been victimized, they don't have justice. The person who's hurt them is not in jail. And now you have another victim of circumstance or previous history or whatever, but justice is not served for anybody if an innocent person goes to jail. So again, thank you so much, Margaret, for coming on. You are listening to The Forensic Psychologist. This is Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.